Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. In his 1939 book, Freedom and Culture, the American philosopher John Dewey meditates at length on freedom, democracy, and human nature. Speculating on what motivates any faith in democracy as the vehicle through which freedom might be realized, Dewey suggests that our pursuit of independence is less an innate drive than the product of culture. If we want individuals to be free, Dewey writes, we must see to it that suitable conditions exist, a truism which at least indicates the direction in which to look and move. The obverse of the American conditions Dewey esteemed are any conditions that coax freedom's sacrifice, a set of cultural manipulations to which the philosopher had become keenly aware in the rise of totalitarian states across the globe. Dewey warned his readers to beware of supposing that these states are brought about by factors so foreign to us that it can't happen here, to beware especially of the belief that these states rest only upon unmitigated coercion and intimidation. In remembering this, I wonder if Dewey would have agreed then with Twitter's interpretation decades later that Donald Trump's use of the phrase American patriots in a January 8th tweet constituted support for those who had committed violence at the U.S. Capitol two days earlier. Twitter certainly read the president's message in this manner and cited his use of American patriots to describe his supporters as one of many factors that determined their banning the president from the social media platform under their restrictions on glorifying violence. In Twitter's view, American patriot certainly wasn't an objective description of one's political identity. Looked at alongside the violence of January 6, American patriots had become a loaded enough cultural referent to warrant cutting Trump off before he might incite other violent acts. The juxtaposition of these two frames, Dewey's proprietary interest in American democracy and Twitter searching for balance between expressive liberty and the public good, remind us how intertwined culture, freedom, and identity are. The freedom we feel to craft our identities proceeds from a culture that tells us that might be available to us. Any restrictions we have internalized against that liberty is similarly articulated through the culture we inhabit. On today's show, we'll reflect on these matters as we continue to visit with the Humanities Center's most recent cohort of alumni college fellows. All this semester, we have been arranging these scholars into academic panels under the banner New Perspectives On. Today, New Perspectives on Freedom, Culture, and Identity. We'll look closely at three very different historical contexts to think about how these terms intersect. The workings of the Freedmen's Bureau in the United States after the Civil War, foodways and indigeneity in post-revolutionary Mexico City, and the Soviet penal system in the middle of the last century. All of this after a short break. 
Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today is Dale Kretz, who specializes in African-American history. Dale's current book project uncovers how formerly enslaved men and women in the post-Civil War South struggled for federal welfare benefits. Here's Dale to speak about how these free people negotiated the complicated machinery of government administration as they tried to realize the promise of liberty. Dale also argues for the importance of this negotiation within the Black freedom struggle across time. Hello, I'm Dale Kretz, Assistant Professor of History. My research focuses on the history of emancipation in the United States. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which formerly enslaved men and women encountered the federal government during and after the Civil War. Historians in recent years have uncovered stunning evidence of freed people's political activities during the Civil War, when the presence of federal soldiers allowed tens of thousands of formerly enslaved peoples to form alliances, exchanging labor and loyalty for protection. Many historians have come to regard these vernacular alliances as the basis for freed people's vision of citizenship after the war. My own research into the archives of emancipation builds on this literature. But it also challenges many prevailing interpretations. When researching this topic, for example, I found a very firmly ingrained, if unnamed, scholarly consensus on the period of Reconstruction following the war. The consensus basically maintains that the reciprocal relationships formed by freed people during the war evaporated by the early 1870s, well before the formal end of the Reconstruction project in 1877. Indeed, all of these studies offering what some call a statist history of emancipation have an expiration date in the early 1870s, when the federal forces occupying the South demobilized, when the Federal Freedmen's Bureau closed up shop, and when reactionary forces returned white Democrats of the South to political power, destroying the biracial democracies that had been so miraculously built on the ashes of the slaveholding South. Accordingly, studies exploring freed people's state-centered politics abruptly end with the demise of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1872, giving way to more familiar stories of protest and community building in the days of disempowerment and disenfranchisement. Part of the reason for the expiration date on the statist histories of freed people is the sudden dearth of documentation once the federal government withdrew from the South. But the deeper explanation is the assumption that freed people's wartime foothold in the central state had in fact ended 
and with it, any immediate hopes for inclusion. Not until the New Deal, the argument goes, that African Americans begin to recapture state recognition. My book, Administering Freedom, The State of Emancipation After the Freedmen's Bureau, suggests instead that the relationship between freed people and the federal government did not end with the demise of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1872. But it did change. And the way that it changed, the way emancipation was managed every day for the next seven decades, depended on the continued political exertion of tens of thousands of formerly enslaved men and women, no longer rendered as allies, but instead as claimants. In my book, I explore the struggles of thousands of ordinary free people who encountered and engaged federal administrative agencies for 70 years after the Civil War. Though long overlooked, then and now, tens of thousands of free people doggedly pursued a range of federal benefits, from military pensions and back payments for unpaid military labor, to claims for lost property, and above all, the crown jewel of all federal benefits, pensions for veterans and their survivors. Now, this includes veterans of the United States colored troops. And in all, over 100,000 formerly enslaved claimants would apply for a federal pension. Now, how did free people negotiate their claims with federal officials after the war? What sorts of claims were available for them to make? How did they turn those claims into rights? And what can their hidden struggles tell us about the long history of emancipation? To answer these and other questions, my book offers a novel perspective on the age of emancipation. It regards freedom not as a kind of mythical, unattainable ideal, but rather as a condition to be managed by the federal administrative state. Free people mobilized in impressive numbers to become the most important block of federal claimants in the post-Confederate South. Through their efforts to earn federal benefits, they not only maintained their wartime foothold in the federal government, but also used it to withstand the forces of reaction. Free people's success in navigating the federal administrative state to secure the fruits of citizenship may well have been their most impressive achievement in an era of disaffection and defeat. But as free people themselves well knew, the transformation from wartime ally to post-war claimant came at an immense cost. They believed that their wartime labors gave their people a collective purchase on inclusionary citizenship and, above all, the long-awaited redistribution of land once belonging to rebels. But the federal administrative state grew in large measure, I argue, as a way to manage the expectations of freed people and delimit the boundaries of freedom in the new liberal order. Therefore, the plaintiff-like status of the claimant served to atomize collective efforts, and technical questions about individual eligibility served to diffuse and displace radical demands about the general welfare. Together, the federal welfare agencies from the Freedmen's Bureau to the U.S. Pension Bureau enshrined selective legal entitlements as the centerpiece of the new federal administrative state, a form of what some scholars call civil citizenship, based in notions of property and contract, as opposed to social 
citizenship, which maintains all citizens by virtue of such status are entitled to social provisions from the state. Thus, when a grassroots movement of black Southerners emerged at the turn of the century, demanding universal pensions for all former slaves, regardless of military service, what we would today call reparations, the Pension Bureau led the effort to delegitimize and destroy it. By approaching freedom as a condition to be managed, my research offers a new perspective on emancipation. First, it regards emancipation as a fraught, decades-long process by which millions of formerly enslaved men and women transformed from a stateless people into documented citizens. And they did so by lodging claims for federal aid. In so doing, my work braids together two entirely separate bodies of literature on the aftermath of the Civil War. The first body of literature is on emancipation and reconstruction, and the second is on the growth of the federal government. Now, social scientists have long understood that the destruction of the slave regime helped inaugurate an era of unprecedented expansion for the federal government. The Pension Bureau is, I argue, emblematic of this growth. Uh, in the early 1890s, federal pensions consumed nearly 40% of the federal budget. But because formerly enslaved men and women accounted for only a fraction of the federal pension rolls, they have long been overlooked. My book, however, is the first to situate Southern free people as critical agents in the expansion of federal administrative capacity. And it does so by examining hundreds of never-before-seen claims, letters, affidavits, depositions, and medical examinations performed on formerly enslaved men to show how former slaves prompted the development of the federal bureaucracy in ways unanticipated and underappreciated. Second, Administering Freedom contributes to an emerging literature on the myriad forms of Black political activism in the age of disenfranchisement, challenging older theories that the intensity of racial repression and the so-called nadir of the post-Reconstruction years caused African Americans to turn inward, self-segregating politically, socially, and culturally. My research is the first major effort to focus not on judicial law, but rather on administrative law. So how administrative agencies internally elaborate on and construct statutory meaning. As I detail in my book, administrators could not produce internal law within their agencies without confronting the tenacious engagement of tens of thousands of freed people who, even in their embattled positions, collectively exerted pressure on federal agencies from both within and without. By redirecting the focus on Black politics beyond voting booths and courtrooms into what some scholars call an ordinary law context, administering freedom also contributes a sense of democratic accretion to the story of citizenship rights in the post-Reconstruction era which is still a very episodic narrative, which relies on the deeds of elite race leaders. If, as many historians argue, the most important gains in the black freedom struggle have come through state intervention, it is vital to understand how thousands of ordinary black men and women intervened in it, persistently and continuously every day since the Civil War. At stake, 
is more than simply an administrative history of emancipation. It is a history of how emancipation was administered and how the emancipated themselves contested it for as long as they lived. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Next, we'll hear from Leslie Wolf, Assistant Professor of Art History. Leslie specializes in Latinx and Latin American art and critical theory. In her current book project, Hungry Eyes, Leslie traces the shifting relationships between art and food during Mexico's post-revolutionary era of 1920 to 1960. As Leslie reminds us, these decades were a period of rampant modernization, in which the rise of modern cookery through electrical appliances and industrial foodstuffs converged and clashed with the nation's growing nostalgia for its pre-Columbian heritage. Here's Leslie to explain in more detail. Hello, I'm Dr. Leslie Wolf, Assistant Professor of Art History here at Texas Tech University, where I specialize in Latinx and Latin American art and critical theory. Today, I'll briefly share some thoughts on my current book project, Hungry Eyes, Picturing Foodways and Indigeneity in Post-Revolutionary Mexico City. I'm very grateful to Dr. Borshuk and the Humanities Center for their support of this manuscript, which is now under advanced contract with the University of Texas Press. My book, Hungry Eyes, provides the first and to date the only analysis dedicated to the significance of the visual culture of food in the arts of Mexico's volatile post-revolutionary era, which is roughly 1920 to 1960. In today's media landscape, richly saturated with images and stories of and about food, my hope is that this book will stand as a distinctive intervention at the burgeoning intersections of food history and visual culture studies. The book tackles pervasive questions about the relationships we perceive between food and art through the historical lens of modern Mexico. I look specifically at the ways in which national identity became tied to a concurrent celebration of indigenous Mexican heritage and a denigration of indigenous Mexican people. As I discuss in my book, these ideas became ingrained in the popular imagination, largely through the entanglement of food with visual culture, food having become a kind of metonym or shorthand for indigeneity. During a period of rampant modernization in which the rise of modern cookery through electrical appliances and industrial foodstuffs converged and clashed with the nation's growing nostalgia for its pre-Columbian heritage, foodways became a meaningful vehicle for an anxious nation grappling with its indigenous past and present. This project is deeply indebted to the work of scholars across art history, visual culture, and food studies. I'm hoping to build upon their pivotal contributions by demonstrating the solidarity and intersectionality between the commercial and domestic spheres of food production and consumption, like Mexican cafes, kitchens, taverns, and cookbooks, and the artists and artworks that occupied and contributed to these spheres. The book approaches this novel in an interdisciplinary lens on modern Mexican art and food through a case study model focusing on three case studies of artistic production and alimentary consumption. Tina Madotti's photograph, Baby Nursing, is examined in relationship to pulque, a pre-Columbian fermented beverage. The artist Carlos Gonzalez's mural, Creation of Mole, is discussed in relation to its ties to mole poblano, which is deemed Mexico's national dish. 
And artist Rufino Tamayo's mural, Naturaleza Muerta, and its um, representation of watermelon is discussed in relation to the Afrodiasporic foodstuff, which was co-opted as Mexico's national fruit. Each study highlights the various ways in which artistic renderings of food actively framed indigenous culture as both the foundation of and a threat to the modern state. When we think of post-revolutionary Mexican art, we immediately conjure images of the monumental murals by Diego Rivera, which literally plaster facades of state-sponsored Mexican buildings, giving visual shape to post-revolutionary national reform and reflecting a revolutionary vision of the state back onto its viewing public. Rivera often invoked Mexican food in his work as a way to signal political ideology. He used food as a commentary on the moral bankruptcy of the gluttonous Western elite, and he extolled the ideological tenets of the Mexican Communist Party through vivid portrayals of Mexico's indigenous communities as the rightful heirs to the nation's abundant and ancient culinary heritage. While these murals have in many ways crystallized the idea of Mexican identity on the global stage, I want to emphasize that the ties between food and art in 20th century Mexico really transcend exceptional individuals like Rivera. Rather, I suggest that food and art's intersectionality is at the very core of the ways in which citizens and tourists collectively came to understand Mexican national identity during this volatile era. I want to pause here to consider the role of food in relation to art. We live in a moment in which our field of sight is saturated with images of food. The so-called foodie culture of social media, which only grants us access to visual information about a dish, so we can only visually consume these dishes that we can neither taste nor smell, it has profoundly shaped the ways in which we express so many aspects of our sense of selfhood. We use these images to negotiate ideas of class, culture, socioeconomic status, nationality, what Pierre Bourdieu called cultural capital. I think that these images have led us to, or are perhaps symptomatic of, an intellectual crossroads in which TV shows, documentaries, books, and blogs have become preoccupied with the fundamental question, is food art? I want to emphasize that for me, this question feels somewhat disingenuous, unproductive, and perhaps even elitist. Do we want food to be considered art in order to elevate its cultural cachet? If food is considered art, then mustn't we in turn acknowledge the artistic genius of the chef? Where then, within this hierarchy, do we locate domestic cooks, street food vendors, farmers? I hold a degree in culinary arts in addition to art history, and alongside years of work in museums, I've also worked as a cook and a baker in numerous professional kitchens. This experience afforded me the time and opportunity to recognize the parallel acts of creation and making that go into artistic and food production alike. The maker must know her medium, whether it's oil paint or rye flour. The audience consumes food and art alike through an experience dictated by the senses. And the literal value we place on food and art has much to do with the invisible machinations of capitalism which veils certain labors and elevates particular products. So really, what does it matter whether food is art? Are we not merely replicating problematic hierarchies of high and low, refined and vernacular, 
when we embark on this kind of discourse? Are we not recolonizing and revalorizing the universalities and specificities of foodways with a homogenous Eurocentric vision of quote unquote value from which the arts have been struggling to delink for over two decades? For me, and at the core of my book, the goal is to shift the question from is food art to how is food visual and why does that matter? These questions position my work within the critical discourse of visuality, a framework utilized in visual culture studies that describes how the state apparatus has historically tethered itself to popular imaginations through control over the broader visual environment. By bringing visuality into more explicit dialogue with the racial and political complexities of foodways in Mexico, I highlight the importance of indigeneity as another layered tool that artists and the Mexican state effectively filtered through the controlled lens of foodways in 20th century Mexico. I'd like to briefly conclude with an example from my research the 1926 photograph known as Baby Nursing by Italian expat photographer Tina Modotti, whose artistic work was primarily produced in Mexico in the 1920s. This closely cropped photograph of an indigenous Nahua woman named Luz Jimenez shows her bare breast as her infant daughter, Concha, nurses sleepily, unaware of the photographic gaze. Luz was a model for many of modern Mexico's greatest artists, appearing in some of the most renowned works of art of the era as an Aztec woman or quote-unquote Indian, her body slipping from individual agent to national symbol. While scholars previously read this photograph by Madotti through a strictly feminist lens, I posit that we need to also consider the eco-critical meanings underscoring Luce's body in this work. The breast milk foregrounded in this image was and is a correlate in Mexican culture with the milky fermented beverage pulque, which was imbibed ritually in pre-Columbian times and after colonization became a drink of great anxiety of state officials over its perceived links to degeneracy and alcoholism in native populations. Taking up as a point of departure the cultural and photographic ties between breast milk and pulque in Mexico, I connect the image of the nursing mother to the visual trope of the native tlachiquero, a laborer who is literally shown suckling the sap directly from the monumental agave plant, a plant associated with the central Mexican deity of fertility. And these laborers were shown extracting and then uh, using that extracted sap to produce the fermented pulque. In showing this, I provide a revisionist reading of Madotti's work through an eco-feminist lens, dialoguing long-standing anxieties about indigenous nursing practices with adjacent and conflictual discourses on pulque as evocative of Mexico's ancient elite past and perceived degeneracy in the present. Thank you all for allowing me to share a bit about my research today and my sincere thanks to the Humanities Center for championing and supporting faculty research during this especially difficult year. Finally, to close today's episode, let's hear from Alan Berenberg. Bonavista Foundation Associate Professor in the Department of History. 
Allen is a specialist in the history of the Soviet Union with an emphasis on the social and economic history of the 1930s through the 1970s. In his latest project, Katoga Reconsidered, Allen revisits Soviet authorities' creation of a new category of punishment during World War II, Katoga or hard labor. As Allen explains, his research examines the intent, scale, and significance of Soviet Katoga against the backdrop of the Gulag and other institutions of mass incarceration. Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Berenberg, Buena Vista Associate Professor in the Department of History. Today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my ongoing research project that's been so generously funded by the Texas Tech Humanities Center. Formally, my project is called Katarga Reconsidered, Hard Labor Convicts in the Soviet Penal System, 1943 to 1945. And I'm investigating a particular category of convicts in the Soviet Gulag in order to better understand both the way that the system worked and the experience of prisoners who were being held within it. These were so-called hard labor convicts, a new category created during the Second World War that was explicitly intended to punish those who collaborated with the Germans. What was particularly unusual about this category of convicts was not just the extraordinary length of their sentences, 15 to 20 years, but also that there was not supposed to be any opportunity for them to be rehabilitated or reforged into trustworthy Soviet citizens. Hard labor convicts were only to be exploited and punished. This made them very much an anomaly in the Soviet penal system. Before getting any further into this particular category, I'd like to step back and just offer a very brief overview of the Soviet Gulag. The Gulag was a massive system of prisons, labor camps, and exile settlements that were closely associated with the dictatorship of Joseph Stalin. Our best estimates are that about 25 million people passed through this system, and at its height in the early 1950s, it held over 5 million people at once. Like most systems of incarceration, the Gulag was supposed to serve multiple functions. First, it was intended to isolate and punish those considered to be the most dangerous elements in Soviet society, whether they were class enemies, members of national or ethnic groups accused of disloyalty to the Soviet state, or criminals convicted of charges ranging from making anti-Soviet proclamations to petty theft to murder and other violent crimes. Second, the Gulag had an explicitly economic function, which was to exploit the labor of prisoners and exiles to develop the Soviet Union's industrial might, particularly in regions of the country that were sparsely populated and where it was difficult to attract voluntary labor. Third, the Gulag was intended to reforge or rehabilitate dangerous elements of the Soviet population into loyal Soviet citizens. While this last goal was rarely the guiding element of Soviet penal practices and policies, there was always at least lip service paid to such goals, even if most prisoners and exiles had little hope of be being considered loyal Soviet citizens once the stain of the gulag was on their record. Which brings us back to the focus of my research, hard labor convicts. In April 1943, as the Soviet Union began to recapture territory that had been occupied by the German army, the USSR's Supreme Soviet, the highest legal body of the land, 
announced new punishments for those who perpetrated crimes against Soviet civilians and POWs. There were many such crimes to punish, as the German occupation had been extremely violent and destructive. Those who were found by military courts to have committed crimes against Soviet citizens were to be hanged in a public place, whereas members of a local population who collaborated with the occupiers were to be, quote, exiled to hard labor for terms from 15 to 20 years. These hard labor, or Katarga convicts, were sent to prison camps in the Gulag. It's this last category of hard labor convicts that I'm studying in this project. Now, it was not at all unusual for the Soviet criminal justice system to sentence criminals to long terms of confinement. Before the war, millions of Soviet citizens had been convicted of a wide range of crimes and were often sentenced to five or ten years of imprisonment, even for relatively petty theft. But this new category of hard labor conduct stood out from all the other criminal justice practices in the Soviet Union. Most obviously, the term of 15 to 20 years imprisonment was unusually long. Even though, technically speaking, prison sentences of up to 25 years have been possible since the 1930s, these were rarely used before the Second World War. Second, these convicts were subjected to a particularly brutal regime in the camps, one that was deliberately intended to enhance the punishment and economic exploitation aspects of incarceration while completely eliminating any possibility of reforging or rehabilitation. This was quite notable since the Gulag had always maintained at least a veneer of concern about rehabilitating prisoners before the Second World War. Hard labor prisoners were to be used only for the most difficult manual labor, were required to work longer hours than other prisoners, were subjected to a regime of increased isolation within the camps, and were given numbers to be worn on their uniforms which they were to be referred to by instead of their names. It was, quite obviously, a deliberately dehumanizing and brutal punishment intended as retribution for the worst kinds of collaboration with the Germans. Finally, I want to draw your attention to the new name for this punishment, katarga, or hard labor. For the first time in Soviet penal practice, a form of punishment carried the same title as it had during Tsarist times, before the revolutions of 1917. Hard labor or katarga had been a dreaded and humiliating form of exile and forced labor since the 17th century. And in fact, many of the older generation of Bolshevik leaders had themselves been punished with this in the early part of the 20th century. Ever since the revolution, the Bolsheviks have been very careful to maintain a strict distinction between their penal practices and those of the Russian Empire. Now, rather dramatically, they deliberately chose to associate a new form of incarceration with Tsarist times. Sentencing people to hard labor was a relatively small-scale practice, with perhaps only about 60,000 convicts at its height in the late 1940s out of a total of nearly 2.5 million prisoners. And the experiences of such convicts is relatively little studied. Beyond the small numbers, many former prisoners were reluctant to speak about their experiences or to apply for a reinstatement of their civil rights because they had been convicted of collaboration, a particularly shameful act. 
Yet the overall effects of the introduction of this new category and their introduction into the camp system was far greater than the relatively small number of convicts would suggest. Many of the practices first introduced with these convicts, including locked barracks and the requirement to wear numbers, were soon extended to hundreds of thousands of other prisoners. My project seeks to understand and answer a number of questions that surrounded this new penal practice and its implementation across the USSR. What were the experiences of those sentenced to hard labor, and how did this compare to the experiences of ordinary prisoners throughout the Gulag? What was the geography of the camps to which they were sent, and how did the hard labor convict population circulate through these locations via transfer? Why did the Soviet state mostly cease the practice of convicting alleged perpetrators of this crime by 1947? And how did the new conditions established for these prisoners, which included longer workdays, locked barracks, and the requirement to wear numbers, affect practices throughout the Gulag after the Second World War? Ultimately, by examining this particular category of hard labor convicts, I seek to gain a deeper understanding of both the Soviet Gulag as a whole and of a variety of prisoner experiences throughout its existence. By studying the treatment and fate of one particular group of convicts that was considered to be the most scorned and dangerous, I seek to better understand how the Gulag system and the violence it perpetrated on prisoners evolved during and after the Second World War. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. We hope you'll join us again next time as we conclude our visits with this year's Alumni College Fellows and listen to them provide us with so many new perspectives on what it means to be human. As always, thank you to the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. We'll see you soon.